invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to that Genesis passage we started with, and we'll get to the John 1 passage also. I don't know how many of you are a PC user or Apple, but about a year or maybe a little bit more than that, I switched back, I switched over, I should say, to being an Apple user, and eventually I switched over to everything being Apple. And now I have, I'm using this morning, an iPad, I have an iPhone, and I have a MacBook Pro, and so I made the whole switch to the dark side, and uh, I'm an Apple user. I even have this morning an i not an iWatch, an Apple Watch. And so trying to diet and get in shape, I have, they have a a program or an app on your watch that kind of monitors all of your activity, your physical activity, and you get, you know, that you're working out to get fit. And there's three things that I kind of look at on a regular basis. Um, total steps, how many steps you get a day, and 10,000 a day is the goal. And then there's total distance of how many miles, literally, that you go in a day as far as exercise is concerned. And then the last one is Flights climbed, which is probably the least successful one that I've had in all three of them. But the other day, um, I was doing some help moving Holly Rivadol into uh, her new location. And uh, on that day, I, I broke my record for flights climbed, which may be nothing to you, but it was for me. And it was 17, 17 different stairs that I climbed. But I, I realized this, that no matter what I do, and even sometimes on some of the days I've had the most steps and walked the furthest distance and climbed the most stairs, that my watch will come on periodically with this message. You still have time to do more. You need to get up and start moving. And I'm going, dude, I've already broke every record today and you still want me to do more. You know, people think that they can get to heaven by their activities. Not by the physical things that they do, but by the spiritual things that they do. And, and they have this app, so to speak, in their soul, they think, and that it helps them to get fit for heaven. Total steps, just every day they want to do good things. And they monitor, really, and occasionally you know, in, take inventory and evaluation of their life, of how much they're doing good. And, and they don't just want to do it from you know, this day or that day, but they have total distance on there. They, they want to do it for the long haul. They want to have a life that has a lot of good things in it because they think that, you know, when you're trying to get to heaven, you're hoping there's enough good things to outweigh the bad things in some people's mind, and that's what it's going to take. But then they come to the third one. And for a lot of people, spiritually, like it is for me physically, the most difficult one is the flights or the stairways that you climb. And people think that the more steps I take and the longer distance I go, and maybe the more stairs I climb, which are pretty difficult to do, that maybe that'll make me fit for heaven. But then this spiritual watch comes on with the same old message, and here it is. No matter how many steps you've done, no matter how much miles you've walked and the distance you've taken, no matter how many stairways you think you've climbed... Your watch says, you know what? You still have time for more. In fact, you should do more. You should do a lot more. And you begin to think, you know, getting fit and staying fit and being completely fit are not the same things. And you could think in your heart and mind, you know what? I tried to be good today and I, you know, I was going to do this, but I knew I shouldn't and I didn't, but I, and I did this instead. Is it really enough? 
Is it really enough? Have there been enough spiritual steps and enough spiritual distance and enough spiritual climbing up the stairs? Will I make it to heaven? What if I'm not good enough? What if I don't have enough steps? What if I haven't done enough over the course of my life? What if I'm really not fit for heaven? How can I truly get God in my life? Jacob, in our Genesis text, is famous. He's famous because his granddad was Abraham, the originator, the progenitor of the Jewish people, and his dad was Isaac. And these are the three patriarchs of scripture, Jacob being one. At this point in his life, he's anything but a patriarch because he's running from Esau. He has, over time, stolen the uh, birthright and the blessing of the firstborn from Esau. And because of that, we find him in our text in Genesis 28. He's running for his life. He's running from Esau, thinking Esau might be tailing him and trying to catch up to him and kill him. That's how mad Esau is. But in reality, it's more than just that he's running from Esau. He's running from God. And he comes to this place in our text, and in verses 11, twice, and verse 16, three or four times in our text, it says he came to a certain place, and that place, and it says in this place in verse 16, And it's going to be a place where God is going to do amazing things in Jacob's life. He's going to change Jacob's life forever from the inside out. But that's not how it starts. That's not how he got there. In this text, Jacob is not seeking God. He's running from Esau and from God. He hasn't repented of his cheating. He hasn't repented of his scheming. He's still trying to hold on and be the one who controls his life. And in verse 12, 13, and 15, three times it says, Behold, behold, behold. In other words, look at this. Look at Jacob and who he is and how he's living. And then take a look at what God does in this place in his life. Something amazing is about to happen. Something life-changing. Something that's going to get Jacob's attention in a way that nothing ever else had. And see, verse 12 says, On that very night when he's running The Bible says he takes a stone from that place and makes it a pillow. I mean, that's how hard his life has become. He's really all alone. There is no inheritance for him right now. He's left the land of promise. He'll never see his mom again because she's going to die. He has no home to speak of. And everything he really loved and important in his life is now gone. He's lost and he's come to this place. He's sleeping outside on a rock for a pillow. But verse 12 says on that very night he has a dream. He has a vision. And he sees in verse 12 it says there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. Now, I know when you think of, and we've sing the songs when we were kids growing up, Jacob's Ladder, but ladder probably really doesn't do it because you think of American ladder, maybe a six-foot or an eight-foot ladder or maybe a bigger ladder, but this isn't a ladder at all in the American sense. It's better to call it a stairway. It's a wide, really, we we should say it's a grand ramp. It's a great ramp. I mean, wide. It is huge. It's the kind of thing described in the Bible that armies use when they get it. They want to take their whole army across a river, and they built this gigantic causeway to be able to get the whole army to go across a body of water so that they could face their enemies. That's the kind of thing that Jacob sees. He sees this gigantic causeway, this huge stairway, and on it, he sees all these angels. 
ascending and descending up and down this stairway that connects heaven and earth. And, and so let me say up front, when you think of angels, these are not the hallmark kind of angels. They're not the angels that, you know, are the soft kind of angels that, you know, you see in the stores with their, you know, bowed and their hands together praying. And no, no, angels in the Bible are not like that at all. Angels are, and the word they use for them is heralds. They're messengers. It's a military term. And, and angels are part of God's army. That's why they need this causeway. That's why in Scripture, angels are part of what's called the heavenly hosts. Hosts meaning military. They are God's invisible army. In fact, he himself has a title, the Lord of hosts, because he is the general or the Lord of all the angels. And when you come into the presence of an angel, and specifically and more particularly, when you come into the presence of God, like Jacob's doing, it is no small thing. In fact, almost every time an angel approaches a human being or they're in the presence of God, they have to lead with the phrase, fear not, because it's such a traumatic experience. And in this text, at the top of this stairway, the Lord is standing there. And he gives all these astounding promises to a guy who doesn't deserve any of them. In fact, is running for his life, running from God, and he's a schemer, and he's a control freak, and he's a manipulator. But he comes into the presence of God, and everything begins to change. And in verse 16 it says, And he was afraid and said this, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Rudolph Otto wrote a book a number of years ago called The Idea of the Holy. And in this book, he researches across all kinds of uh, national boundaries and cultures into how people respond when they think they are in the presence of the divine. And what he found was that, unlike people in America think, no one across the world, when they thought they were in the presence of God or the divine were very casual at all. In fact, they were anything but casual. And the word he came up, or the phrase he came up with to describe the description of people who thought they were in the presence of God was numinous dread. The word numinous means spiritual or supernatural. And he said it was numinous dread, that they were afraid for their very life. It's kind of like when you're in the presence of someone taller, you feel smaller. Uh, I, I was in, uh, I told you the story before, I was in Acapulco with my family one time in Mexico on a vacation, and I walked into the pharmacy, a little drugstore, whatever you want to say, in, in the hotel that we were staying at, and I walked in there, and crazy enough, Dr. J, uh, Julius Irving was in there, and you know, back then in high school, you know, I'm not a very tall person per se, but he's pretty big, six, six or seven, you know, I know there's a lot taller than that, but when you see him and how big he is, you know, you feel small in comparison, I, it, it's kind of like the presence when you are, when you're in the presence of someone smarter. You know, I went to seminary and got really good grades in Bible college, and I took the original languages as my minor, and I got to school, and I thought I was pretty good and knew a lot of things. But not until I sat under my professors in seminary did I realize, you know, you're in the presence of someone who really knows what they're talking about. When you're in the presence of someone smarter, you feel dumber, <laughs> to be honest with you. In the presence of someone stronger, you feel weaker. I went to the gym. This is we, many years ago. And I, I wanted to do those, you know, curls. So I got, I think I, mine was like 20-pound curls. So I'm working out and really stressing, you know, and looking over. And a guy just about 20 feet from me, he was doing 70-pound curls. 
you know, he's doing that, and I'm doing 20. And I'm thinking, like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much going to quit doing this because it's nothing compared to what he's doing. And, and when you're in the presence of God, it's not casual. It's numinous dread. Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah was in the presence of God in heaven in a dream, and he sees high and lifted up on the throne. Here's what he says. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. And you know what the word lost means in the Hebrew? It means undone. It means I'm disintegrating. It means I'm coming apart at the very seams and fabric of who I am. See, it wasn't casual. When you're in God's presence, it's like you're falling apart. Revelation chapter 1, the revelator John, he said, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. I mean, that's what it's like to be in the presence. Jacob has this vision. He sees God at the top of the stairway. And God makes all these, in this first response to God's overwhelming grace that he is showering undeservedly on his life, is that he's afraid. How awesome is this? I'm in the presence. This is the gate the house of God, the gate of heaven, he says. Now, I, I read that text numerous times this week again. And the question I have to come up with is one i got to share with you. Maybe you're already asking in your mind, why in the world would God want to come into the life of someone like Jacob? I mean, this is who God is. Look how awesome and holy and great and powerful God is. Why in the world would God seek out Jacob? Jacob's life was a mess. He's not repented of his scheming, his cheating. It's not like Jacob is coming after God saying how bad he is. God, let me tell you, I need you so much. That isn't what's happening. So I ask, how could heaven be opened to someone like Jacob? Why would God want to come into Jacob's life? He knows everything about Jacob. He knows he's a schemer. He knows it. And he knows that he's cheated things and that he stole things from his brother. He knows exactly what kind of person he is. But heaven still is open to him. And so I ask, how is that possible? You might be here this morning through the live stream. And maybe you're beginning to ask that very question about yourself. You say, PW, you know, I'll be honest, my, my life's a mess. Messed up my marriage. Messed up morality. Messed up relationally emotionally, I'm always choosing the wrong kind of guys. I just want to be liked. I, want, I don't want to go be by myself, so i got to have a boyfriend. Maybe it's gone so far in your life that it's, you've been in treatment centers, maybe rehabs, jails. You can't keep a job. Not sure where you're going to turn next. To say you have a stone for a pillow would be quite an understatement for some. How can God, you might ask, how could God ever have an open heaven for me? The answer, the overwhelming grace of God. He has this dream and sees God at the top of the stairs and God starts showering him with I am statements and I will statements and I am with you statements. Jacob must think in his mind and heart, not only how awesome is this place, but how awesome is this God? How could this possibly be? How could, after the life I've lived and the things I've done, Jacob must think, how could God still want me? Well, we find the answer to that centuries later to the, in the other text that I read this morning, if you'll turn there, in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is the text 
about Jesus calling some of his disciples to follow him. And in the text, immediate context, the first people are two disciples of John the baptizer, and one of them is Andrew. And Andrew goes and finds Peter and wants to take him to Jesus, like John the baptizer has been taking people to Jesus. And Peter meets Jesus, and immediately in the text previous to ours, Jesus sees Peter and says, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Kepha, which in the Hebrew means rock or stone. See, just meeting Jesus and having him in your life changes his complete identity right off the bat because Jesus can see what he can make you out to be. Even though you're not that, not in any way, shape, or form right now, you are not a rock. God, through Jesus, is going to make Peter a rock. Philip, in the text that we read, is called by Jesus to follow him. And the town he lives in, the Bible mentions, is Bethsaida. It's the same one that Andrew and Peter are from. And it, and it must be from where Nathaniel is because Philip goes and tells Nathaniel, hey, we have found the Messiah. And then he tells him who exactly that Messiah is. He says, we found him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Underline that. Because Nathaniel comes up to Jesus, but before he does, he says to Philip in response, could anything good come out of Nazareth? And so he sees Jesus, and Jesus sees him coming up, and you can read the text for yourself in verses 45 through 50. He says, this is an Israelite indeed that has no guile, and and the word means no deceit. It means he's not a manipulator. We would say today, he's a straight shooter. He just calls him as he sees him. He tells exactly what he thinks. He doesn't try to, you know, flatter you. And he just says it straight out, what he's thinking. And then he says, I, and Nathaniel says, how do you know me? He says, well, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before Philip ever came to you. And, and he's so convinced by that statement by Jesus. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And he says, and because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, you believe me? You think I'm the Messiah based on that? And then Jesus says these words, in my estimation, perhaps some of the greatest, most amazing words ever said by a human being on this planet. He says this in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He is quoting the Genesis 28 passage. You know what he's saying? Let me tell you what he's not saying to Nathaniel. He's not saying to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I can show you the gate of heaven. I can show you exactly where the stairway from earth to heaven is so that you can get there. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I can show you the connection between heaven and earth. I can show you how God can come into your life just like he came into Jacob's life. He's not saying that. But if he was, that would have been amazing because there aren't, any, there aren't very many people who could say that. But he's saying more than that. Do you see it? He didn't tell Nathaniel, now there's the gate of heaven, and I want to tell you the five things that you're going to have to do as entrance requirements. If you want to get up this stairway from earth to heaven, let me tell you, here's the things you're going to have to do and accomplish. So you better get fit. You better start climbing now. That's not what he says. Instead, you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that heaven and earth intersect on me. You see it? He's saying, I am the stairway. 
See, I'm not just showing you where it is. I'm not showing you that it's there. I want you to tell, I want to tell you this. It's me. I am the stairway. It's my coming into this world. It's my life that I lived. And it's the death I died. It's my resurrection. He says, Nathaniel, I'm going to be the one who fulfills all the requirements to get from earth to heaven that you could never do, that you could never earn, that you could never be fit enough for. Jesus is saying, listen to Nathaniel and to all of us this morning, he's saying this, you can't climb the stairs to me, but I have climbed down the stairs to you. You can't climb up to me, but I have climbed down to you. And what he wants Nathaniel's to do, and he wants the Jacobs to do, which is one of the key words in the Gospel of John, is to believe that, to believe in him. So he says to all the Jacobs who are listening at Faith Baptist Church this morning, people who have messed up their lives, people who have made so many poor choices that now they have a stone for a pillow. How can God open heavens for Jacob who are so messed up? The answer is for Jacob and the answer is for Nathaniel and the answer is the same for all of us in the 21st century. Here's what it is. Overwhelming grace. That's how we receive it. We receive overwhelming grace. How do you get it then, Pastor Walker? How do I get it? I've messed up. I admit it. I'm not the person. There's no way that heaven should be open for me. I understand that. But how does this overwhelming grace come into my life? The answer is you need humility. God's grace was achieved humbly by Jesus. And it, will, and it must be received humbly by us. You see, Scripture says in Proverbs, which is also recorded in the book of James, that God resists the proud. He resists the proud. It's to put your hand in someone's face. God says, I put my hand in the face of people who are proud, people who think that they're already, see, there are the Jacobs who think they've messed up, and they have, and there's the Nathaniels who think they measure up. People who think, oh, Nazareth, could anything come from good from there? Because where I come from and who I am, I'm so much better than that. See, the stairway to heaven to be able to get from the bottom to the top is not because you haven't messed up or you think that you've measured up. It's because you need Jesus, not for you to go up, but for him to come down. See, humbly, achieved humbly. That's why Jesus was proud to say, I am Jesus of Nazareth. If you know anything about Nazareth, it was not some thriving metropolis, as history tells us, archaeology tells us, it was a city of about 2,000 people. It wasn't known for hardly anything. It was not known to uh, have the, be the home of a lot of intellectuals. It wasn't a place where people were known for their spiritual purity in relationship with God. They, there weren't a lot of famous kings or generals or popular famous people from there. In fact, to be honest, Philip, I mean, uh, Nathaniel's right. There isn't a lot of good that ever came out of Nazareth. Most people, including Nathaniel, would say this, God would never go there. God would never go to Nazareth, much less ever be from Nazareth. But here's the thing. He did. He did go to Nazareth. He did come from Nazareth. The Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, he didn't come into this world as a philosopher. 
He didn't come as a general. He didn't come as a politician. He came as a carpenter. He came to a backwater place, Nazareth, where nobody wanted to be from. He was born into a poverty-stricken family who at the temple, when he was circumcised, had to offer pigeons because they couldn't afford anything else. Pigeons were the least that you could give. He was born into a life of a mom and a dad who were disgraced from the very conception of his life. When people found out that Mary was pregnant, they would either believe two things. She had had an adulterous affair with someone while she was engaged to uh, uh, Joseph, or Joseph had impregnated her. And when Joseph decided to be okay with marrying her instead of getting rid of her and divorcing her, he would know everyone would thought that he was the father. See, to agree to have Jesus come into your life, see, it would be a disgrace and in a shame and honor culture. They were giving up their reputation. Joseph was considered Sadiq, which was righteous, and everyone looked up to them as a model couple in a town where there weren't very many of them. And now they would be just like everybody else. And they had lost their reputation. It wasn't just for a while. It would be for the rest of their lives. See, Scripture tells us that when heaven the heavens open, God's glory tends to come down in mangers, not at the Holiday Inn Express. God's glory comes down upon crosses, not thrones, on disgraced and desolate people, not on those who think they are good enough, not on those who think they can measure up on their own. You see, Scripture says that our salvation was achieved Humbly by Jesus. Paul wrote these words. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not something to be grasped after, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on himself the form of a slave and became and, and was found in fashion as a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even a cross death. He took the most humiliating, shameful, agonizing, torturous death. Followed by or preempted by a humble life. Humble in his birth, humble in his life, humble in his death. You see, that's how our salvation was achieved. And can I tell you? It was achieved humbly, and therefore it must be received humbly. Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him in the text, and it says, There is, here's an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Now look, look, look at this. Jesus knew what was going on inside of Nathanael, just how he knew what was going on inside of, inside of Jacob. He says, this is what's inside of Nathanael. No guile, he says. I know what's going on inside of him. He's the guy who thinks that it's impossible that there's no way that I could be the Messiah. You know why? Because he says, I come from Nazareth. And he says, that's impossible. The Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, he wouldn't come from there because he's got his idea of salvation upside down, Nathaniel does. God knows Nathaniel's prejudices, he knows his pride. He knows his preconceived ideas about the Christ and the Messiah and where he should come from and how he should be. And can I tell you this morning, frankly, see, he knows 
what you're like on the inside too. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows your desires. He knows the pretense that you put on to let other people think that you're interested in him. But he knows what's going on on the inside. He knows that you run from him in your heart. He knows that you have a huge fear of surrendering. I mean, really surrendering your life in totality to him because if you really knelt completely to his lordship, you're afraid of what that might mean. The friends you might lose. The time you might go without having someone to date. And what it would really cost you if you lived out your life that way. He knows the struggles that you face and the fears that you have on the inside. He knows the things that you're holding on to and you're gripping so tightly that you are unwilling to let go of that keep you from him. He knows. He knows exactly what's happening inside Nathaniel. And he knows exactly what's happening inside of you this morning. But that's not all. He says, Nathaniel, before ever Philip came to tell you about me, I saw you, he says. Do you see that in the text? Verse 48, I saw you under the fig tree. The Bible doesn't illuminate. There's not a lot of extra things that are talked about about where this fig tree was. It doesn't say what he was doing under this fig tree. It doesn't say if he was with anybody else. We don't really know. But it was personal enough to radically alter and totally change Nathaniel's view of Jesus. I mean, he went from, can anything good come out of you know, Nazareth to saying now, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You know what that means? You, you are the one seated next to him. You're the son, you are the king of Israel. You are the rightful one to be on the throne. He went to, I can't believe this, to I totally believe this. How? Because he realized that Jesus saw him. He saw him for who he really was and that in seeing him and all the details of his life, heaven was still opened, that the stairway was still available, that the angels were ascending and descending. And it wasn't because of who Nathaniel was. It was because of who Jesus was. See, he knew Nathaniel on the inside and he knew Nathaniel on the outside. And Nathaniel says, how do you know that? I saw you, he said. I saw you. See, Jesus knows where you've been this week. He knows. He saw it. He saw what you were doing this week when you were at those places. What does it make you feel like when you think of this? He saw me every moment of this week. He saw you when you thought no one else was looking. He heard you when you thought no one else was listening. He read every text. He saw every website that you went to. When you were on the computer screen, here's what he says, I saw you. See, when you were with your girlfriend out of the eyes in the sight of your parents, he said, I saw you. See, when you were with your friends, and all the things that you were saying and the things that you were doing and how you were talking and the, and the things that you were desiring, he says, I saw all of that. He saw you when you were alone and by yourself. He saw all of it. And Nathaniel, he wants you to say, he wants to say, I saw you on the inside and I saw you on the outside and I want you to know heaven's still open. 
the stairway is still available, but you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to humble yourself and say this, God, I can never climb up the stairs, but you sent Jesus down the stairs because only he can fulfill the requirements. Listen, I've messed it up. And see, it's not, if you, you messed up maybe like Jacob or maybe you've messed up like Nathaniel. Maybe you've gone to church and you've been pretty good all your life and you never did this and you could tell me all the things you haven't done. But can I tell you, whether you're a Jacob or Nathaniel, you need Jesus. He's the only entrance to heaven. He's the only gate of heaven. He's the only stairway. And he stands at the top of it waiting for some of you this morning to say, I just can't climb this stair. I'm not fit for heaven. But see, it was humbly achieved. And it also has to be humbly received. So whether you messed up or whether you think you measure up, can I tell you this? You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning, and this is good news for you, maybe good news for the first time. Maybe you come to our church all the time, but for the first time, God has so used his word by his spirit in your heart, and you have humbled yourself. And you thought, well, if I'm just a good Baptist, and if I just read my Bible, if I just come to church enough, and I give some money in the offering plate, and I'm not, I try not to, and you, you say, if I could just climb and keep climbing, and the spiritual watch says, well, you, you know, you did good today, but you needed to get up and start moving again. See, I just can't climb. I can't make it to the top. I can't. That's why Jesus had to come down to the bottom. That's why he, had, he became a man. That's why he lived the perfect life and died on the cross. Why? Because you can't climb the stairs. He has to come down to bring you up. And only the humble can receive a gospel like that. Perhaps you're here this morning, you'd say, Pastor Walker, I need him. I need him. And I want to humble myself. And I want to submit to his lordship completely. I don't know what that means altogether. But I know this. He's the way to heaven. He's the only one that can give forgiveness of sins. He can the only one that can give eternal life. Right there where you are, you can bow your heads and close your eyes. It's not a magical prayer, but it's to invite Jesus into your life, to ask him. See, maybe you weren't even seeking him this morning, but like Jacob, he's been seeking you. And he brought you here this morning to watch this message so that you could humble yourself and receive his salvation. Would you call him, just tell him this, I can't climb the stairs, but I know this, in love, you came down. You came down, lived the life I should have lived, and died the death I should have died. And I put my faith and trust in you. I'm asking you to forgive my sins and to be the Lord and Savior of our life from this moment until I see you face to face. Would you do that this morning? And if you do, would you let us know? We'd love to help you take further steps in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pray, and then we're going to listen to a song and worship as we close in Christ alone. And then we'll be done. Father, I pray for those under the sound of my voice, people from the nations today who need you. Father, would you give them humility to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Israel.
Would he also be king in their lives today as they submit to you and call out for your mercy? May they be able to say at the close of this service that their hope is in Christ alone. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.